Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1 FM. That's the station you're tuned to, and it is your local independent community radio station. My name's Andy, and I'll be hanging out with you for the next hour on Jagera and Tourable Country, and of course, many surrounding nations as well. And today on the show, we are going to be talking about. Um, Aboriginal issues in this country and in particular we're going to be talking about the voice to parliament referendum That's right. You may have heard of it. It's been in the media a bit especially the last week where the um, Official election propaganda I guess from the yes and no cases um, was put out by the Australian Electoral Commission Uh, You'll hear a bit more about that on the show about thoughts on that but I am personally of the opinion that if you are going to uh, work, try to vote on something that will affect Aboriginal people and that is supposedly in the interests of Aboriginal people, then you should be listening to Aboriginal people. And so, to that end, I am helping you out today on the paradigm shift by interviewing two different Aboriginal leaders on opposing sides of the... Um, the fence about the voice to parliament. First off, I'll be speaking with Kirsty Parker, who is from the Uluru Dialogues, who uh, travel around the country trying to uh, educate people on the Uluru Statement from the Heart and what it would mean for Aboriginal people and how it could be put into place, um, which includes talking about the Uh, voice to parliament referendum and suggesting that people vote yes to that. I also spoke with Wayne Wharton from Treaty Before Voice who is one of the prominent Aboriginal people who are saying that people should vote no to the voice to parliament referendum. Of course there's been other um, activists around the country. The Black People's Union I think released their Uh, their own case for the no vote today. I haven't read it yet, but um, Wayne Wharton as well. Many of you, if you attend Aboriginal rallies in Brisbane, Mianjin would be familiar with him and he's always has plenty to say. So I spoke with him about um, the voice to parliament. So by the end of it, you will be slightly better informed. Um, You will at least have heard from a couple of very... Uh, well thought out and well spoken Aboriginal people and their thoughts on the 
referendum in general. So let's get into it. I'll start off with Kirsty Parker. My name is Kirsty Parker. I am a ULRI woman from northwestern New South Wales, and I'm also the strategic advisor to the Uluru Dialogue. I guess before we go any further, can you tell us what the Uluru Dialogues are? Can do. So the Uluru Dialogue is a group of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, First Nations people, that were tasked after the 2017 Uluru Convention with taking forward and advancing the Uluru Statements on behalf. And what does that look like? So we are, have been working for the past six years to bring to Australians the invitation of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Some Australians may be aware that the Uluru Statement contains three fundamental aspirations that reflect, you know, what our people have told us they would like to see moving forward. Um, those aspirations are voice, treaty and truth, and people might be most familiar with the voice proposal. This is a First Nations voice to Parliament which will be subject to a referendum later this year where Australians will be asked if they um, uh, agree to recognising our people by allowing a voice to be established so that our people can speak to the parliament about the matters that impact on us. Mm. And so as part of the Uluru Dialogues travelling around, I guess you're... um encouraging people to vote yes to this proposal is that right well what we're doing is we're not explicitly expecting people to vote yes because we're very confident when they receive um the information and accurate information because there's been a massive amount of misinformation um uh proffered by no campaigners um but once people have accurate information we are confident that they will make the choice that sits best with them. We obviously hope that they will vote yes because we believe that a voice is a genuine opportunity for Australia to move forward as a nation where our people get to have a say on the things that are done to us um, that rather that they will be done with us and that you know they are the best solutions. We've seen so much um, you know unsuccessful effort put into in inverted commas assisting our people to advance um, we've seen a lot of money wasted because uh, our people haven't been listened to. We've had bureaucrats in Canberra, for example, and other places making decisions about what will work in our communities when they, in some cases, have never literally visited one. So we believe that when people understand what's at stake, and there's a tremendous amount at, at stake in terms of the levels of disadvantage amongst our people, but there's a real opportunity for the nation to come together and say, yes, we believe First Nations people should have the dignity of being able to venture an opinion to the Parliament, not tell the Parliament what to do or how to think, but venture an opinion on the solutions to these challenges. Now, there's some details that I suppose still uh, would be worked out about The Voice, but I, can you give us a, a bit of an overview of how this would work? For instance, who would be in The Voice to Parliament and how would they be chosen and... Um, what kind of things would they have input on and what kind of things wouldn't they have input on? That's a really great question because there's been um, uh, a lot of mischief made with um, the voice and what it is aiming to do. Um, some people have been saying there is absolutely no detail out there. Um, I can tell you listeners that since April there have been some very clear design principles that set out that the voice um, will... Um, 
be an advisory body to government. Um, there is no compulsion on government to follow the advice of our people. We certainly hope that the Parliament will, but uh, the Voice does not have a right of veto over the making of laws, for example, the setting of policies. That is the bailiwick of government and remains to be the case. The Voice membership would be determined from the ground up, so from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and communities around the country, determining who their representatives are that will go on to this national body. Um, the Voice will not be a funding body. It will not administer programs. Um, it will be inclusive of all sections of our community, young people, old people, um, you know, uh, gender, etc. Uh, and The Voice is there to provide advice to um, the parliament and executive government. So that means from cabinet ministers to bureaucracies because we know these are the spaces where decisions are made about our people. In the past, they've not been good decisions and that's why we have seen um, little um, to no progress on many of the closing the gap targets. So that's the sort of information that is out there. People have been caught up uh, with people saying, oh, there's not enough detail and people have, have, have said, what is the level of detail you need to uh, vote at the referendum on a matter of principle and that is about do you agree that our people should have the dignity of being able to provide input on the things that are done to us and um, you know the parliament after a successful referendum will determine the function um, uh, the final composition uh, the powers and uh, the the procedures of the voice after our people have had an opportunity to provide our advice. So some people are, you know, running up all sorts of furphies like, you know, couldn't end up could end up being one person. That will clearly not be the case. It will be the representation that comes from the ground. We know that our people are very broadly supportive of the voice to parliament. Obviously there are some differences of opinion, but from our own surveying of our mob, we know that eighty three percent of people supported First Nations voice to parliament. And we hope that um, they will follow through in terms of voting yes at the referendum. In terms of um, what it would look like there, you said, oh, it won't be one person, which, yes, I'd say is very likely. But are you looking at some kind of model of proportional representation? I mean, there's a lot of different Aboriginal nations and circumstances are very different from place to place. I mean, how do you think it would go unifying all the different Aboriginal nations and, and feeling like each one was properly represented? Well, this is about democracy amongst our people. Um, what, as I mentioned, one of the design principles is that the membership will be determined by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. There won't be representatives from 350 different language groups, but there will be representation, at the very least, from regions throughout the country. It is not known what the specific makeup will be but we know that it will be chosen by our people and it won't be um, people that will be you know, moving to Canberra and becoming politicians. These are people that are working within their communities on the ground and we also know that um, you know there's been reports in the past for example the previous federal government commissioned a report referred to as the Karma Langton report which came which came up with a model um, that I think had suggested a number of people, it was 24 people. I have to say that was a report to a previous government. That is not um, known to be the model that will be taken forward. And as I say, it'll be subject to further consultation. After Australians have voted on the principle and we've had a successful referendum, that's when our people will have 
more advice to government and the parliament about what the composition of this body should be. But, you know, for people, it's really funny, you know, the, composi- the constitution, which many Australians are unfamiliar with, is about principles. It's not about the level of minutia that a lot of people are trying to extract from this discussion now. The first and most important thing is that we know that Australians support us having a voice and then uh, this granular level of detail will will be determined in consultation and engagement with our people and that's appropriate and as it should be. For the average Aboriginal person, whether they're in the city or in a remote community, I mean, how do you think the day-to-day life of somebody who you know, will not be in the voice to parliament, how will their life be affected by this voice existing? Well, I think every um, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person can be comforted in knowing that when government is designing programs and making laws about our people, that they know what the First Nations perspective is. And, you know, people have been saying, oh, this isn't very powerful, it's an advisory body. I can tell you that if Australia comes out in force and there is a successful referendum, governments will take notice of that. They will know that Australians have said you shouldn't be doing um, to Aboriginal people the way that you have always done it and not ask them about it. We've just um, had a trip out to Sherberg yesterday, a couple of hours' drive from Brisbane, and it was a fantastic opportunity for us to catch up with mob at Sherberg. Um, We had... Uh, a fantastic meeting where people ask questions, the things that they've been worried about that um, are based on furfies and we had an opportunity to talk to them about how things would, uh, how the voice would help. One example was a fella that runs these amazing programs with young people from Sherbrooke, takes them out on country, they do cultural camp, um, you know, they are embedded in their waka waka culture um, and he was saying, you know, it's difficult, difficult for us to get funding for these programs. And, you know, I think that there may be bureaucrats who think, oh, that's nice, you know, there's a dance troupe, let's go and do cultural activities. And I think it's because bureaucrats do not understand the significance and the importance of our young people being secure in their identity and secure in their country, knowing where they're from and who they are. That bodes well for every other statistic for Aboriginal young people, you know, in terms of their engagement with education, their confidence in engaging with society. You know, we know from the recent Productivity Commission um, annual data report that we've got some uh, closing the gap targets that are going backwards. One of them is the suicide rate amongst our young people. We know that our young people commit suicide at four times the rate of other Australian young people, which is a terrible statistic. We know that when people are connected to their culture and their people, that they are going to be more confident as they go through life. If bureaucrats understand that, they don't dismiss things like cultural activities on the ground in communities as unimportant or insignificant. And that is a very powerful thing. And that could be extrapolated to every single program that is developed for our people to access. Also in Sherberg, we had people saying to us, um, they're talking about us becoming equal with other Australians. If we're equal, um, does that mean that we will not have the support of our community-controlled organisations? We won't have the assistance that we um, currently have with our health for example, because we know that our people have tripled the burden of chronic ill health as other Australians. You know, there are conditions like diabetes, heart disease, etc., that are, um, you know, hugely much more prevalent amongst our people. And we're having to assure people and say, that will not be going backwards. We have the closing the gap framework. It is not currently working, but the input 
of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander members of The Voice, as well as our community-controlled organisations, will make a very powerful difference so that bureaucrats know what will actually work in our communities. There are a lot of very prominent Aboriginal people, especially people who've been involved in kind of grassroots activism and the embassies and things like that over the years who have come out against the voice. They say, uh, I guess it detracts from Aboriginal sovereignty. It is quite a few people that are, are saying it's publicly the Black People's Union have released their statement, things like that. I mean, what would be your response? Well, I would, I would actually say that um, every Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person is entitled to their opinion. Um, I would challenge whether um, proportionately it's a huge number of our mob who are saying we don't believe in the principle of our people having a voice um, to Parliament and in all other realms. Um, we know from our own um, research that 83% of our people support a First Nations voice. Of course people are entitled to ask questions, but to suggest that the voice demands that people see their sovereignty as the Black Sovereign Movement has claimed recently um, is a, it's a thirsty, it's a falsehood. The voice to parliament says nothing about sovereignty. As I mentioned, there are three aspirations on the, under the Uluru Statement from the heart, voice, treaty and truth. It's intended that the voice will um, provide guidance on the setting up of a Makarata commission that will oversee agreement making, i.e. treaties and so on, and also truth-telling processes that will be largely conducted at a local level. It's in that treaty-making space that there will be conversations about sovereignty. But for anyone in the Black Sovereign Movement to suggest that um, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people um, have either ceded their sovereignty if they agree with a voice to Parliament or are not sovereign is actually quite insulting to Aboriginal people. I'm a black fella. I don't know anyone else, any black fella who says, I have ceded my sovereignty. And the ceding of sovereignty is not something that can be done by accident. It's, um, it has to be a very deliberate act. It would have to be a deliberate decision by our mobs. And so far, I don't see anyone ceding their sovereignty. So this kind of artificial setting up of the black sovereign movement, they're the only sovereign Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and anyone that supports the voice of parliament is not sovereign, is gravely insulting and wrong. Well, for people that are wanting to inform themselves in the lead-up to this referendum and they particularly they want to hear from Aboriginal people and their viewpoints on it, how do you think people can best educate themselves? Well, I think they should avail themselves of all of the range of opinions out there. Obviously, I have a personal opinion. The Uluru Dialogue um, supports a voice to Parliament because it's the first aspiration expressed in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. But people should avail themselves of what the No Camp are saying, um, what the Black Sovereign Movement are saying, pretty much what everyone else is saying. Absorb the information and then make the decision because, as I say, when we go out and we talk to people on the ground, including some people who come who say, I'm opposed to the voice, by the end of the conversation, they invariably say, I understand what this is about now. I didn't understand the detail. I didn't myself attend a dialogue or the Uluru Convention, but I understand this principle and this principle is important to us. So I would say to people, you know, um, you can certainly from our perspective go to our website, which is uh, org. sets out the history of the Uluru Statement and also the activism that our people have carried out for more than 100 years. You know, we had William Cooper um, petitioning the king in, uh, you know... Um, 
the early 1930s about representation for our people in Parliament. That was actually about having our voices heard. We've seen the most magnificent, magnificent efforts made by our people throughout history. We had the um, our campaigners in the 1967 referendum, which started something. I know that those people, and particularly, you know, I know from personal experience, my old people would love to see a successful referendum now because it will finish the work that was started in 1967. So I just say to all of your listeners, become informed. There are plenty of places where you can find this information and interrogate what you are reading because, as I say, there's a whole bunch of misinformation. I just want to provide an example from the No Camp. Um, and this was, um, you know, I was in the Senate chamber when the Constitution Alteration Bill passed on the 19th of June. We had to sit through a senator... Um, insisting that the stolen generations policy from which our people have never truly recovered and may never truly recover, but she was uh, extolling the virtues of the stolen generations policy. We've had, you know, uh, former government ministers who are part of the No campaign insisting that Aboriginal people should be grateful for the gift that white people have brought to this country. Um, that same former government minister has said, one of the worst things we can do is listen to the victims. So we've had the most retrograde statements made in the course of this um, process. So I really ask people, well, when they hear something and it doesn't sound quite right, to pursue it and get all of the information and then make their minds up with all of the information in front of them. Okay. Thanks very much, Kirsty. My pleasure. You are listening to 4ZZZ, it's the Paradigm Shift. I was talking with Kirsty Parker from the Uluru Dialogues. She gave a very good case for the um, yes vote in the campaign and as a second part of the show, I'm going to be speaking with Wayne Wharton um, about the Sovereign No campaign um the official referendum of pamphlets information pamphlets came out this week and in the no campaign there was a few aboriginal people i think warren mundine was quoted in there but there was no talk about sovereignty or um you know aboriginal nations being recognized individually or anything like that but there has been a quite a strong and vocal campaign from various um, Aboriginal people around the country talking about that. And so I thought we'd also cover that to, so everybody can hear the breadth of opinion or at least, you know, two uh, very well-informed, well-spoken um, people from different parts on the spectrum of opinion about the Voice to Parliament referendum. And so we're now going to hear from Wayne Wharton. G'day, I'm, I'm Wayne Wharton. I'm convener of the Treaty Before Voice campaign and um, also I'm one of the conveners of the Brisbane Sovereign Embassy and Brisbane, Brisbane Blackfellow and Akuma Man. And today we're going to talk about the Treaty Before Voice campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a, a lot of talk in the media about the voice to parliament and referendum and things like that and Generally, people have said that if you support Aboriginal people, you should support the voice to Parliament. Obviously, that's not what you're saying. So what are the reasons why Aboriginal people and their supporters would oppose the voice to Parliament? 
Well, I don't like to talk about the voice of Parliament period. We were promised constitutional reform. That's what we were promised by the Albanese government. That's what we were promised by the Turnbull Council of Constitutional Reform Committee. Every Prime Minister that, that has come along has promised and, and made efforts towards constitutional reform. Going back to 1992, but even going back as far as Gough Whitlam with the National Aboriginal, NAC, National Aboriginal Conference. So we've, we've had this, and we've had this desire, Aboriginal people have had a desire about how we overcome the illegal occupation, the illegal occupation of this country and the, 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 the displacement of, of our rights and our interests over the last 150 years leading up to the, the Mabo decision. So the whatever the referendum is about at the moment isn't what First Nations people want. What we want is for the 18 million people that vote in this country to look at how they can overcome the injustices of the occupation and the war that took place in, in this country. Mm. And so is it that you think the voice to parliament is sort of useless to that end or do you think that it's actually a, a harmful thing to Aboriginal people in this country? Well, in the, 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 the notion that what, what is being put forward by the, the, the council in the Langton report commissioned by the Morrison government last year, um, what they're proposing puts us back 50 years easily. It puts us back to the existence of the Aboriginal Protection Act that existed in, in New South Wales until 83 and then Queensland until 83. It, it, it um, puts us back prior to 1992 with the, the Mabo decision in the High Court where the High Court recognised the authority of each nation, 300 different nations in this country, to manage their own affairs and to negotiate what happens on their country. Anything else that comes in between First Nations representatives at, at their nation level and the, the Commonwealth is an interference. Because right now, each First Nations group, the 300 nations around this country, have been operating on the premise since 1992 that if something is wrong at a local government level, they can go to the federal court. If it happens at the, the, the state level, they can go to the high court. If it happens at the, the commercial level, they can go to the high court. And they can seek redress about injustices or failure to comply with the, with the law as we know it. And you think that the voice department would take away that ability? Absolutely. Well, absolutely, an advisory group. Any change to the constitution is is a direct interference with how the High Court operates, because the High Court has to comply with the constitution. 
not the Constitution complying with the High Court. So in terms of how that would affect Aboriginal people, is it that you see, you know, that the the group that becomes the advisory body, that they would have power over individual Aboriginal nations or something like Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, to take a, a feather out of his head, but Winston Peters, a, a prominent Maori politician, actually pointed this out to Albanese not more than two weeks ago. And if, if a Mary, if a Mary politician can can see it, and you know, seventy elected Labor Party members can't see it, you know, there's got to be a reason. And, and, and I think the reasons uh, having a, a, prime, a alternative motive in terms of having the voice. So um, it, it, it's if a bloke like Winston Peters can see it and, and 70 elected Labor Party officials can't see it, something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is this uh, rhetoric that the Uluru Statement for the Heart was like a, a unified voice of Aboriginal people in this country and asking, you know, in a time when what was being pushed was just a, a preamble in the constitution saying we want a voice and that it was this act of, of unity. I mean, what what do you say to that, that this was a consensus of Aboriginal people who came up with this suggestion? Well, what I say is that um, it was a selected group of people that were um, selected by the Morrison government and resourced by the Morrison government and before that the, the Turnbull government and they were um, resourced very um, very comfortably and they were given the means to, to come up with this. But what they didn't do was understand that, you know, First Nations people, we have our own law, we have our own representative structures and we have our own process of how we decide on matters of, of state within our nations. And what they overlooked, particularly people like Thomas Mayo he's a Torres Strait Islander man his rights and interests finish at Torres Strait within the Torres Strait on the mainland Australia he has no rights or interests his rights and interests finish on whatever island he comes from now when they behave in disrespectful manners and go around the country advocating to change the constitution on our land it, it shows the, the the lack of insight and respect that they have towards our decision making processes our law our religion and our um authority and then the way that we conduct our business do you think is there a difference between that and Islander, person on the mainland, to say you being a Cooma man from out west and, and being in Brisbane, do you see that as a difference? Absolutely, thing? absolutely. There's things within Brisbane I can't say jack about. This is Juggera land, it's terrible land. I'm here and I operate here and I run my politics here under the Brisbane with the Minjin Blacks Treaty that was conducted back in 1844 and elected Dunderley as the war chief. We've always had our treaty between the 50 or so First Nations groups or other groups that choose to come to Brisbane and you live and you, you practice your, your life and, and conduct your life in 
the full view of the traditional owners, the Jagger and Turrbal people, and at their um, discretion. I guess in campaigning against the voice, you find yourself arguing in a lot of ways against Aboriginal people from around the country who are very vocally for it. I mean, how does that feel if you're going to have to publicly debate, you know, other Aboriginal people? No, no different to what it what it was between Pemaway and Bannalong. You know, we've always had differences of opinion. Within, you know, the whole idea of um, of elders was a church concept. You know, and in our society, you had smart old people and you had dumb old people and you had smart young people with knowledge and you had um, young people that had didn't have that particular knowledge so you know debates and discussions amongst our, our people is nothing new nothing new and um having dif- difference of opinions about situations is, is nothing new but what what there is is um a mechanism where by way of your people being able to listen to both sides of the story and make a, a the decision that our law that's the way that we operate i can only offer suggestions to 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 my mob kuma people and um they at the end of the day as a as a group decide which way we go and um if it's contrary to what i believe well i have to live with that and get busy doing something else but um when it's other nations or in other individuals mainly academics trying to create another system another process that doesn't respect my law or our law around the country or the existence of our religion and now we make that's when um we start feeling as if we've been manipulated and um being used and abused there's roughly a million people of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander heritage in Australia. I mean, what proportion do you think are people like yourself who are, want to hold strong to a sovereign line and, and reject the voice to parliament? Oh, I dare say, well, there's a, they'll go on stats, there's 880,000. So oh, I dare say there's an easy 800,000 that, that still live in their communities of Murujulu, of Kalamala, of um, Kuma, of um, Kalali, or Sherberg, or Palm Island, and um, they believe in their autonomy. So 800,000 easily that would choose um, self-determination and freedom rather than um, choose to be Australian. You reckon that the vast majority Eight, of 800,000 800, still believe in their sovereignty? and choose to operate as sovereigns and not as um, occupied people. And you reckon it's just a small minority that are lobbying for the... I wouldn't say that. I would say you have a look at the Yes campaign and the photos and tell me how many blackfellas you see on them. You have a look at the No grassroots, No. Every one of them is headed by a blackfella. Well, there are um, plenty of people campaigning for No who are not headed by blackfellas and don't have the interests of blackfellas at heart. Mm. I mean, one of the things that you've uh, talked about is the fact that in the official Electoral Commission uh, paperwork about it, the 
that there's no mention of sovereignty or anything like that in the no pamphlet. Mm. Uh, there's, there's no mention of the sovereign union. There's no mention of um, Treaty Before Voice. There's no mention of Lydia Thorpe. There's no mention of um, the other 37 activists around the country that have been advocating since January to say no. So the, the Electoral Commission is, is totally ignored. But what there is, is the right-wing face of Dutton and Warren Mundine that are purporting a no campaign. But the grassroots no, no campaign that has been going on since 1992 has been totally ignored. It doesn't worry you at all, like, lining up and joining in a, a sort of campaign against the voice department with people, you know, right-wingers, conservatives, racists, you know, people who are outright racist, mm. uh, who don't have the interests of Aboriginal people at heart, that you're somehow assisting them in their campaign against the referendum. Well, I look at the other day, by the way around, is they're assisting us. And um, if that means that they save us from entrapment and from harm being included in the Constitution, by all means. I think the old, old saying is that um, my enemy's enemies are my friends. And th there's nothing truer than this situation. When, when I talk about the, the future of my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren, th this is a price that we're not paying, is that um, if the opportunity in the, for them to settle the, the score with the colony is protected and, and achieved by by voting down and killing the voice, well, that's what's got to happen by whatever means possible. So if the referendum takes place and there's a no vote, would you see that as a win for Aboriginal people or do you think that that I, I just further enables kind of racists in no, no, I think it's... What, what you've got to understand is that the rest of Australia gets judged by the rest of the world. This is what... What we put up with, I'm 62 years old and I've never known freedom. You know, we, we use words when we talk about, we use words such as self-determination, freedom, liberation. And um, if, we, if we want to live in a, on our own country and practice our birthrights and the rights that are given to us, we need to be liberated, not occupied not occupied by force. Our children need to know that they have a hope of getting their inheritance back. And what we need to know is that, and what we need to do is to prove to Australia that the war did take place, they displaced us, they took our resources, they stole our kids' inheritance, and if they want the conflict to stop between First Nations people and the colony, They've got to change what they did under the 150 years of terra nullius. And they've got to give back the land they stole, give back the inheritance to the kids that go, and they've got to do the same as anybody else in the world, and they have to undertake the ending of the war, the Cold War process, and the ending of the, um, the disadvantage and the justice through reparations. Now, reparations is something that we can't expect 22 million people to get on the bus and go home. But what we can do is expect 18 million people to go to the polls and vote to do something just. 
and just and right. And that is reparation, to give us back a percentage of our resources, a percentage of our um, wealth that was stolen in the form of reparations, the same way the Germans and the Japanese and the Turks and the Italians had to pay after the end of the Second World War. And then if that was done, you wouldn't have the, the conflict where our, our angry young men and women are stealing cars, breaking into homes, getting incarcerated. Our men folk and our women folk wouldn't make up two-thirds of the jails. So justice comes in, in a whole lot of different forms. So, well, if you're saying people in solidarity with Aboriginal people or people who are Aboriginal people should go to the polls at the referendum and vote no, I guess what action do you think that the everyday person who supports Aboriginal people, what action should they take in place of voting yes, which they're being told is a vote well, for Well, they should Aboriginal vote people? no. They should vote no and they get behind the treaty movement so that we can change how society looks at the treaty so that we can attack the, the real rednecks and the real racists that want to maintain their privilege where we had stolen wealth, wealth has to be returned. Where we had inheritance stolen, it has to be returned. The displacement of people off their land, off their homelands, all these things that should have been done in 1992 takes a lot of courage. So nothing, the, the privilege and the maintenance of the privilege, people will go to no, no ends to, to do. But I have a bit of faith in um, people wanting to do the right thing, to be able to, to, to say, well, enough is enough. Um, what happened in the first 150 years, we've got to fix up. All right. Thanks very much, Coco. I appreciate right. your time. That is Wayne Wharton there. You're on the Paradigm Shift on Fortunable Z. And today on the show, we have been talking about the Voice to Parliament referendum. It's coming up later this year. And... We will all be invited to have our say on whether Aboriginal people um, should be represented with uh, a voice to Parliament. And I think to have the, be the best informed that we can be to have our say, we should be listening to Aboriginal people and what they're saying about it. And so we did today on the show here, um, Wayne Wharton just then, and earlier on we had Kirsty Parker talking about... She's from the Uluru Dialogues, and she is in support of a yes vote for the referendum. But yes, it will be coming up. It's certainly going to be something that's in the news a lot, and I think, as I've already said, what's most important is that we listen to Aboriginal people and try to act in their interests rather than um, those of us who aren't Aboriginal do what we think is good for us to make us feel like we've done a good thing. It means getting in there and listening to Aboriginal people and finding out what they're saying and what um, the people affected think are some of the best solutions. And, of course, like anything, when it comes to um, voting and politicians, fortunately, we're not limited in our political engagement to voting for whichever politician gets in because um, that system is just not really designed to be in the best interests of the common person or for our native environment, for protecting country and thinking about future generations and things like that. And so uh, I think like any kind of referendum or vote, 
ultimately what will be best for Aboriginal people in this country won't be decided at the ballot box, but it will be about how we can live things out, how we can create solutions on the ground and how we can be in continuing solidarity with Aboriginal people and try to enable the flourishing of the first people on this continent who you know, lost so much when our the rest of us, our ancestors came. But we will be voting and so, yeah, get informed to make sure you are doing the best you can and that's about all we have time for on the paradigm shift this week we of course in the lead up to that referendum will i'll be continuing to bring you interviews with aboriginal people around this country talking about all kinds of issues that affect them see you next week